Hey, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in Luke 1, Genesis 1 very shortly, uh, and then also we'll go to Acts chapter 1. Actually, I don't know why I told you Luke's 1. Um, Luke 3 is where we're going to be. Um, so, so we're back to kind of doing our sermon series through our year-end or 2020 goal. So that's, we've moved that kind of over here, but we're still focusing on that, doing that to where we're saying we want to be a church that is gospel-rooted, we want to be a church that is life-giving, we want to be a church that is spirit-filled, we want to be a church that has community, and we want to be a church where people can belong. This is kind of what we're trying to be as First Baptist Church of Portales. And so uh, we've already been through gospel-rooted and life-giving this year for the entire month of May. The entire month of May, we are going to do an entire sermon series on what it means to be spirit-filled. Who's scared? Okay, that's good. I was just, I was just curious. Because when you say, say spirit-filled, right, uh, particularly in a church kind of like ours, uh, you, you instantly throw kind of two trenches down and, and people go inside in what trench they want. So you have your certain people that are like, hey, let's just not talk about that. It's weird. We don't really fully understand it already. We're wrong because we're calling it an it when really the Holy Spirit is a he. And let's just, we just don't want to wade into those waters and then you get your other trench over here that is like, man, I'm ready to start jumping pews. Let's go. Like, let's, let's talk about this thing. And I'm going to try to see if I can pull this in to really ask the question, what does the Bible say? What's the Bible telling us about who the Spirit is? Because the Spirit's not some force to be contained or to gather in. Um, it's not some far-off, confusion-driven experience. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's the, the triune God. It's God interacting within us and with us. And so what does that mean and how does that respond with us? And so this is what we're going to be diving into. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. I spent more time this week trying to settle myself into this that by the time Thursday rolled around, I was like, I have a lot of information and I still don't know where I'm going with it entirely. So I, I think I know now, but just get ready. Today is kind of our introduction type in to, to this. So this is going to be like drinking from a fire hose. I'm just going to pour out as much information of the Spirit as I can, see if I can wrangle that in and lead us into the next four weeks after this about why this, this whole thing matters. Because if you're anything like me, uh, I, I come from a background of very academically approaching the this, this Spirit. Seminary is a weird thing, man. I, I love it. I love my experience with seminary. Um, but how, how do you grade like assignments on the Holy Spirit. Like, what does that look like? Hey, I need you to go out into the streets and get filled with the Holy Spirit and witness to people and then report on it and I'll give you a... You can't do that as a professor, right? Like the only thing you can do is say, here's what the Bible says. And then what happens is we approach the Spirit as this pure academic forefront, as if it's just some information to be gathered. And that really fails too because the information to be gathered isn't really fully what what the Bible's trying to convey, because let's be honest, who here would like to start a relationship where you only have information but no interaction? It doesn't work that way. A, a real relationship demands both information and interaction with, and so welcome to what we're going to talk about for five weeks. Are you ready? Okay, let's, let's, let's do this. Um, whenever I was growing up, my, my parents, and they'll probably listen to this sermon and they'll probably be mad at me for saying this, but I, you know, my parents did this awesome job. They were great. I love them. I mean, come on, no. I'll tell you, the one thing, and I think my mom would even admit this, that, that they may have struggled with a little bit, was this thing we call 
enabling. You guys ever? And, and I don't really even know if I want to fault them on that. I was just a really good whiner. Like, I was really good at, com- I don't know how to change the oil in my car. Will you do it for me? Um, and so they did. And this led to some other problems later down the road in my life. Uh, when I got into college, I had gotten a car, and so I didn't, you know, I didn't know you had to change the oil in a car. That just magically happened at my house growing up. I just woke up, and my oil was changed. And so I went two and a half years without changing the oil in my car whatsoever, driving back and forth from Jackson to Lebanon, Tennessee, three-hour drives, until one day, my car did not go anymore. Uh, it broke down on the side of the road. I had to call a tow truck. I took it into the shop, and they said, man, your engine exploded. Like, when's the last time you changed the oil just thought that like magically happened, man. I don't know. Like, so that's where I learned. Oh, I should, I should do stuff like this. So that put me in a predicament because I didn't have a car anymore. I was living about 30 minutes away from campus for school. And so I had, I had to get a car. And so I, again, called my parents who helped me with stuff like this. And, and my dad tells me, hey, your uncle has a truck that he's trying to sell right now. It's a 1998 Azuzu Ombre. Anybody heard of an Azuzu Ombre? He said, but your, your uncle said he'll sell it to you for what he got for it. He won't, he's just good deal go ahead and call him. So I called my uncle and went and picked up this, this old truck, and it was a stick shift. I'd never driven a stick shift before. So I thought, man, I really need to get some information about what it means and what it's like to drive a stick shift. So I did what every millennial does when you're trying to gather information on something. I went to YouTube. Yeah, I started watching videos on YouTube. This is how you drive a stick shift. Perfect, that looks easy. You just push in the clutch gear, it let off the clutch a little bit, push down the gas, it goes, no problems, let's lock this thing in. I get in my truck, I take it back to, to Jackson. I'm not, what I'm really not telling you is I had my mom drive it back to my college town for me because I didn't want to drive it on the interstate first. That's not safe. So anyways, finally get back, get in my truck. My roommate gets in my car with me and we're going to go to lunch. And so I've, you know, I've watched enough information about this. I know how to drive a stick at this point. That was not the point that I knew how to drive a stick. I'll tell you the point I learned how to drive a stick. It was when I went to go at a red light and I stalled it. And I started it back up and went to go again and stalled it again. And the car behind me honked at me. And the car behind that car honked at that car, which honked at me again. And I'm set, and then that's when I learned to drive a stick. Now it's either do or die. I have to drive this thing. That is the moment in my life that Philip was converted from non-stick driver to being able to drive stick. And I think I, I use all that to say, to, to, to say this idea of, you know, study is only a part of practice. And in, in fact, I would argue, given my experience with that, that study cannot replace practice. I can sit there and watch YouTube videos all day long about how to drive a stick. It wasn't until I'm stalled in the middle of an intersection with four cars honking at me that I really learned to drive a stick. You know, it's, it's desperation that drives practice sometimes. The desire to actually accomplish the thing. And you know this because, right, if you go into a surgeon and you're saying, hey, I need surgery, and your surgeon says, well, I've never done surgery before, but I've watched a lot of YouTube videos and I think I generally have the idea. I've done a lot of study over this. I even have documents on my wall that says I've studied this. And then he says, but I've never like actually seen it done. You're going to say, no thanks. Because at some point, right, study must meet practice. And here's the problem, I think, with the modern American church, particularly churches like ours with the Holy Spirit. We can study. We can study, study, study. And that's a great thing. But if we never put into practice what it means to be filled with the Spirit, we can come out on the end of this sermon series in June and have accomplished nothing. 
Because the Holy Spirit, whoever he is and whatever he does, is not just an entity to be known. He is a person to live in relationship with. And this is what we're diving into as we talk about the person of the Holy Spirit this week. We're going to start in Luke chapter 3, and I'm going to just hit some ideas here today. What we're going to do is just take some generalized ideas of the Holy Spirit, roll them into our lives, and then kind of go from from there. So Luke chapter 3, we get this really short story of the baptism of Jesus. It says this, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And as he was praying, praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove with a voice that came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is one of those passages that if you're anything like me, you've read a bunch of times, and you just, like, I don't know, I guess I just think the Bible's being kind of like poetically metaphorical. Like, oh, dove, that's pretty, and we just move on and don't think about that. Couple things I would say to that, though. Number one, anybody, Bible trivia time, anybody know what Luke's occupation is? He's a doctor, he's a physician, right? Uh, In my estimation, I've learned that doctors are usually not in the business of writing prescriptions in poetry. They just kind of you know, if, if Luke's personality is poetry, he doesn't show it very often. He, he's not a very poetic guy. He's a very, here are the facts, man. Here's how it happened. Here's what happened. Here's when it happened. So if, if Luke is just saying, and a spirit came down like a dove to be poetic, that's weird. That's not in character with Luke. Now, the other thing with that is, too, all other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and John, make this exact same comment. That as Jesus was being baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. What is happening here? And I think if we want to answer that question, we have to go back to Genesis 1. So go, go in your Bible to Genesis 1 with me. We'll come back to Luke 4 here in a little bit. Genesis 1, this is a passage we talked about a couple months ago, but I'll just kick into it with you again. Very start of your Bible, verse 1, verse 2. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. That word hovering is an interesting word. It's only used three times in the uh, Old Testament. So it's used here, and it's translated hovering. It's used another time to talk about bones rattling. The other time it's used to reference is of a bird fluttering. That's the other. So the general translation that we think is this idea of fluttering. It's a bird flying away. That makes sense when you think about jittering bones. It shakes enough to fly, right? So this is the idea. In fact, I could carry that out just a little bit further for you. Um, During the exile, so when Israel was taken over by the Babylonians um, and they were taken into captivity, the Babylonians were excellent at forcing cultures to assimilate into their culture. And so the Babylonians forced the Hebrews to switch from speaking Hebrew to begin speaking Aramaic. This is why if you go and read the book of Daniel, which is talking about the, uh, the exile and happening during exile, that parts of that book are written in Aramaic. And so the, the Pharisees, not the Pharisees, but the rabbis, the, the temple leaders at that time, uh, as they were exiled away, they thought, man, if we don't do something, we're going to lose our identity and our culture because none of these children know how to read Hebrew anymore. They can only read Aramaic. And so what they did is they decided to go back and translate the, the Old Testament from Hebrew into Aramaic. This was a Bible that was often referred to as the Tagar. And so if you go back, this was likely the Bible that Jesus would have read. Because when Jesus is around, he was speaking Aramaic. Uh, he would have probably read in Aramaic. If you go back to some of these Tagar references, uh, in Genesis 1, it'll say, and the Spirit was hovering over the deep. And they even insert a little commentary that says, like a dove. 
Are you seeing some tie-ins here? So whatever is happening, Luke seems to want us to tie in the spirit in Genesis 1 hovering over the deep to the spirit hovering and coming down on top of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. And I'm making all these ties not just because I think they're interesting, but I think this starts us on a trajectory to understand who the Holy Spirit is and what he is doing in the world. Because what Luke does is he says, hey, in order to understand this here, we need to go all the way back to the beginning. So who is the Spirit throughout the Old Testament? You guys having fun nerding out of the Spirit with me yet? Good. Because we're going we're to dive into the Hebrew a little bit. Everyone feeling okay? Let's do this. Okay, we've talked about this once already, but we'll go into it again. In the Hebrew, the word for spirit is the word ruach. You guys remember this? You have to clear your throat really well. It's ruach, that's good Hebrew for you. So ruach, and throughout the Old Testament, it has multiple different uses of the word. There are times when it is translated spirit, Genesis 1-2. But if you go right over to Genesis chapter 2, God is going to breathe into Adam. And what we find translated there is the word breath, but can you guess what the Hebrew word is? Ruach. Yeah, so it can mean spirit or it can mean breath. If you jump all the way over to Exodus chapter 14, there's this story of Israel leaving captivity of the Egyptians. They come across the, Dead sea, the Red Sea. The Egyptians are following them. And so Moses is going to go and he's going to put his staff into the sea. And the sea's going to split. You guys know this story. Do you know what happens before the sea splits? A mighty rushing wind comes in. Guess what that word wind is? Ruach, okay? So it can mean breath, it can mean spirit, it can mean wind. It's all three of these ideas combined in together. And then you fast forward to the New Testament, and it does the exact same thing. In the New Testament, it's the word pneuma. This is where we get our word pneumonia from, right? So pneuma, Greek is okay with putting a P in front of an N. It's weird, I know, but they can do that. We could just say pneuma for simplicity, though. And so all the time, uh, John chapter 3, Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus, and he's talking about being born of the Spirit, and then he's going to say, the wind blows wherever it pleases. Do you know what the word for wind is? Pneuma, Spirit. Then Jesus, in John chapter 20, is going to breathe onto his disciples and say, receive the Holy Spirit. Do you know what the word breathe is in John 20? Pneuma. Are you tracking along with me here? Wind, Spirit, breath. It's all the same in the ancient eyes. That's weird to us. And you're probably already like, okay, hippie Philip, dial it back. This is weird. But but go back with me. Put yourself in the mind of an ancient. I'm not trying to undermine the significance of what's happening at Jesus' baptism. I just want you to see what I think Luke is trying to communicate to us. In the Hebrew mind, the, the spirit was as normal as the wind blowing in the trees. The Spirit of God was undeniably real. All you had to do was look outside. All you have to do is hold your hand in front of your mouth when you talk, and you can feel it. Because the same thing that is animating the trees is coming within my lungs and doing what? What happens if something stops going? It's dead. Yeah. So do you see where their mindset is? They're saying, look. Whatever it is that's moving that tree, that's the invisible power force of God interacting with the world. And that same thing that moves that tree moves into me and keeps me alive. Because if I ever stop doing that, I'm dead. This is how close the Spirit is to the Hebrews. This is how close the Spirit is to Jesus. We have separated these ideas because we have different verbiage for it. We know what wind is and what breath is and what air is. 
But if we can get back to this idea of understanding the Spirit is not some far-off thing that we have to work for and formulate a way to get to and gain, but a person who is as close as the air is to our skin, now we're starting to see a biblical perspective of the Spirit. So carry that concept out. We find that the Old Testament authors believed that the same Spirit that animates trees can also animate humanity. That there are times that it not just give, that he doesn't just give life, but he comes in and he gives purpose to specific things. And so there are times throughout the Old Testament that the Spirit will fill people for a particular purpose in a particular situation to fulfill a particular task. And so the first person ever filled with God's Spirit is Joseph in Genesis. Joseph gets filled with God's Spirit in order to interpret Pharaoh's dream. That's not something, I don't know about you, but that's not just something that I have within my like, repertoire, on my resume. Able to interpret dreams, very good at it. That's something that's more than just the mind of a human. That's God interacting and demonstrating in a clear way. So God fills Joseph with his spirit. There's another story. If you go to Exodus about a guy named Bezalel, I told you, it's a water, it's a fire hose. We're just going. There's a guy named Bezalel. He gets filled with God's spirit in order to create architecture for the tabernacle. This guy makes really pretty furniture for the tabernacle, and he does it because he's filled with the spirit. So whatever the spirit is, whoever he is, he's sustaining life as we breathe, But there's also stories in the Old Testament of him coming in and creating new realities as he's interacting with people in powerful ways. Okay, back to Luke chapter 3. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And he was praying, and as he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like that as a dove. I think what Luke is trying to do here He's saying, hey, remember what happened in Genesis chapter 1 when the Holy Spirit came down and hovered over the dark, chaotic abyss as he began to calm and create room for life? The Spirit did what he has always done, and that is intervened with creation to sustain and create a new life. And now we have another story where, once again, the Spirit comes down and hovers have water again, but this time he hovers not just over the water, but over the third or the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, God the Son. And I think it's the same imagery of saying, get ready, because what the Spirit did in Genesis 1 to penetrate the darkness and bring life to the chaos is about to do the same thing. And then what does Jesus do as this story begins to unfold? What does the rest of Luke go into? Here's, here's my point in all of this. If we treat the Holy Spirit as a small side project of God, if we try to minimize, ignore, and downplay him, if we pretend as though the Holy Spirit is somehow less God than God the Father and God the Son, we have not only committed what the early church calls heresy, that's what that is, is heresy, but we've totally deprived ourselves from any chance to have God's power pierce through the darkness of sin in our own lives, in our church, and in this town. Because I'm just going to tell you, we do not have the power to penetrate the darkness of sin. We don't have that ability. Why? Because we're entrapped by that very sin. You and I cannot fix Portalis. First Baptist Church cannot fix Portalis. It is only the power of God in us. 
So it doesn't matter what we strategize about. It doesn't matter how good of a yearly plan we come up with. That, that stuff's great and wonderful. But if we don't have the Spirit, we will not prevail because we're broken. It must be the Spirit through us. So here's my first idea. Luke 3, looking at the idea of the ancients, they had no doubt in their mind, the Spirit is real. The Holy Spirit is, is absolutely real. And marking the start of Jesus' ministry at his baptism, the Spirit directly acts within Jesus' life to start bringing life to the darkness again. This time, not just the darkness of chaotic ocean waters, but the darkness of sin that has wreaked havoc on the world. And so Jesus is going to then go from this point and you'd be amazed if you read the book of Luke, because Luke is over and over again. Well, here, we'll just read it, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, at the very beginning, it just says, And Jesus left the Jordan, so he left his baptism, what? Full of the Holy Spirit. And then was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. There's a whole story we could talk about then, but fast forward with me to verse 31. He goes through, he overcomes the temptation, and then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and was teaching in the, on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. And then go on a little bit more, verse 30, well, I'm blanking, sorry, verse 16. Verse 14, then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. The news about him spread through the, uh, their entire vicinity there. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. Do you see the theme of Luke? That the Spirit is going to continue lead, leading Jesus in all of these different places. Over and over and over again, Luke's going to say, and Jesus led by the Spirit, and Jesus filled by the Spirit. And so he gets back to his hometown of Nazareth in verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up as usual, and he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery to the sight of the blind, and to set free the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. This has to be like one of the most tense, awkward situations that the, uh, Nazareth has 300 people in it. It's not a big place. So they probably have, you know, just a couple people in their synagogue and Jesus says, this is all about me. And he sets down and they're just staring at him. And he says, listen, he began to say to him, today as you listen, the scripture has been fulfilled. And what's the fulfillment? That the Spirit of God is on him. That the Spirit of God has anointed him. If you remember our sermon series through Psalms 1 and 2, we talked about there's a Hebrew word that means the anointed one. That Hebrew word is the word Meshiach or Messiah. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah right here in his hometown. He's saying, I am the anointed one. And what am I anointed with? The same spirit of Genesis chapter 1. The same spirit that filled Joseph and Bezalel. The same spirit that blows in the trees is living within me. So the spirit is not only real, according to the gospel of Luke and according to Jesus' life, the spirit is active. Spirit is bringing life to chaos, combating spiritual brokenness, piercing sin-stricken humanity. It is active within the world. And, and how is it active? What is it doing? 
This is what Jesus reads in the temple. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captive, recovery sight of the blind, set free the oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is the rest of the book of Luke going to be about? Jesus doing this exact thing. Oh, and how does he do it? Through the Spirit. This isn't a new thing. This isn't something that just Jesus decided, ah, we've never tried this before. Let's try it out now. It's just the Spirit is now doing what the Spirit has always done through humanity, through Jesus incarnate. Jesus is walking now in perfect step. He always has, walking in perfect step in full power of the Holy Spirit. And he goes to Isaiah and he tells you exactly what his life and what a life filled with the Spirit is going to look like. And the rest of the Gospel of Luke is going to tell us stories of these. And this is where we tend to trench in a little bit because we call these things miracles, right? And already you're probably in one trench or the other. You're, you're probably saying, man, we need some miracles in First Baptist Port Palace. Let's, let's see them happen, Pastor. Let's do it. And then other of you have walls of skepticism that are going up because that's, that's weird. And I don't want to weigh into that area because I don't have a category for it. And I don't really want to try to have a category for it. And so what we've ended up doing is trying to recategorize miracles and we'll say things like, well, the, the miracles were simply signs pointing out that Jesus was the Messiah. And that's, that's great and that's fine, but like, were there people that did miracles before Jesus? Yeah, I mean, Moses hit a rock with a stick and water poured out of it. Elijah laid on a little kid that was dead and brought him back to life. Neither of them claimed to be the Messiah, so that there's something else there. And sometimes on the other side of that, we'll have people that say miracles are like our supernatural toolbox to fix the problems we don't like in our lives. But there are plenty of instances in Scripture where prayers just don't get answered. Mark chapter 1 tells us that they were bringing all who were sick to Jesus. And then verse 34 says Jesus held many who were sick. Two different Greek words. They brought all who were sick. He healed many. That means some people didn't get healed. We want to come in and say, oh, did they not have faith? What's happening there? And the Bible just doesn't tell us. It just says this isn't how that works. If you go to the book of Acts, you'll find all throughout the book of Acts just people praying for salvation, and sometimes it just doesn't happen. In Acts 12, Peter gets thrown in jail, and the church has this all-night prayer vigil for him, and like the chains are shaken, and an angel brings him out, and he comes, and he knocks at the door, and he's like, hey, guys, I'm okay. And it's this amazing answer, a story of God answering prayers. But in the paragraph right above that, it says James gets arrested and killed. You can't tell me the church didn't pray for James. Like, we really like Peter, but we don't like James so much, so we're not going to. I would imagine that they had an all-night prayer meeting for James, too, and God said no. So what is it? How is this working out? How do we make sense of it all? And I'll be honest with you, I don't know if I can give you just a perfect answer to it, but what I can say is when the Spirit shows up in our lives, he pierces through the darkness. But he gets the chance to do that as he pleases. And it's our job to reliably go to him and lean in and just trust him. So I'll give you, just for a few minutes, let me go on this a little bit and then we'll finish up. Even what I think is going on with miracles. I think in our vision today, we have this kind of skewed perception that most people would say miracles are God's like supernatural intervention within the natural order of the world. And I would just say, what if we've gotten that upside down? Because that begs us to ask the question, what is the natural order of the world? And if we approach that question biblically, the, the original order in which God created the universe was an order of perfection. 
That when God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the perfect garden, he did so with this order of no death and no pain and no suffering and no hurt and no disease. God is not responsible for any of those things. But it's human sin and the rebellion of Adam and Eve where sin creeps in and begins to create suffering and pain and blindness and hurt and you, you name it. So here, here's my take on this. What if miracles are not, in fact, an intervention of God within the natural order, but a restoration to the natural order? This is how Timothy Keller puts it in his book. We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease or hunger or death. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and to heal the world where it was broken. And how does he do that? Through the Spirit. The Spirit is going to shine through the darkness and where the heaven overlays with earth, astounding things begin to happen. Not so that we have this toolbox of, come on, let's follow the formula and you can get healed. But to say, no, God, we want to see heaven shine through in amazing ways. Bring your Spirit that we know is active. Here's, here's my point. Jesus believed that the Holy Spirit living in him would empower action from within him. And he goes on about his ministry, the, the life-creating power of the Spirit, which has been present since Genesis 1, it does what it's always done. It goes into dark, lifeless places and begins to pierce through the darkness, restoring life to God's original design. God so desperately wants the world to be renewed and redeemed that when he shines through and pierces the darkness, the remarkable begins to happen. But our pursuit is not of the astounding event. And if any church tells you the pursuits in the astounding event, come to our healing ministry. They've totally misunderstood what the Bible says. It's about the renewal of the Spirit starting within us. The most amazing miracle that the Scripture has ever portrayed is the resurrection of Jesus offered to give you the resurrection of your life. The forgiveness of your sins. That's the miracle from which everything else flows. This is what the Spirit does within us. This is exactly what the Bible is going to go into next. That the Spirit is not only real, the Spirit is active. The Spirit being real and active is then accessible. So if you go to Acts chapter 1, Luke again writing the second book of this. goes into, I wrote in the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard from me speaking about. For John the Baptist baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? And he said, that's not for you to know the times or periods the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive the power from the Holy Spirit when it comes upon you, that you may be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is coming at this point and saying, everything that I've done is now available to you. He's in the, in the book of John, Jesus is going to take, in John kind of 14, 15, 16, and 17, he's going to go on this little sermon before he dies, and it's all about sending the Spirit. And Jesus will say things like, man, for me to die and, and, and to go is better for the Spirit to come. And I think we would try to argue with Jesus on that. 
But Jesus seems to believe that what we need is not his bodily presence on this earth. It's the spirit within us. We must have the spirit who is real, active, and available. The spirit of God wants to come and dwell within you to powerfully interact with this world. So why don't we? Why, why, why don't we feel and experience the, the Spirit? We've got eight things here, and I'm going to go through these really, really, really fast. So, but just eight reasons I think, generally, they won't all apply to you. Some of them may. But eight reasons why I think we, as, as First Baptist Portalis, miss out on the Spirit. I, I stole these from another pastor, by the way, so it's not um, a pastor named Tyler Stanton in uh, Portland. Um, so I stole them from him to give him credit, but I, I think they were worth mentioning. So why do we fail to do this? Why do we miss? Eight things. We're going to go fast. Number one, because we're students, not practitioners. We study the Spirit. We study the Spirit. We study the Spirit. But then we leave from here and we say, that's really to be studied, not experienced. And we miss on what God is doing. Again, I would just say, if we get to the end of this sermon series and we successfully lay a more solid theological foundation on the Holy Spirit and we never practice it, we're wasting our time. We will not see Portalis change. We will not see this church change. We will not see life's change. We must be practicers. Number two, because we have within us a lack of expectation. I mean, do we really expect that God can solve and fix and change Portalis? That he can radically infiltrate our schools and our families and renew and bring life? Or is that just a fairy tale we like to remind ourselves of and and go to bed at night and not really worry about it. Because if we follow the spirit of the Bible, then, then we should expect that he can absolutely do that. He's all-powerful. But do we expect that? Number three, we believe we're disqualified by shame. One of the most powerful words that Jesus speaks is this word, whoever. That whoever believes in me will not perish. Whoever believes in me can receive the spirit. And when Jesus says whoever, he doesn't mean most people, right? Whoever. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. God can use you and wants to use you. See, Jesus is not afraid of empowering the disqualified. Jesus is afraid of putting authority in the hand of those delusioned enough to believe that we've qualified ourselves. Number four is unrepentant sin. That the Spirit is calling out sins in our life and we're not repenting of those sins. And I don't see it as my job as your pastor to get up here and say, here's all your sin and I'm going to but it is my job to create room for the Holy Spirit to say, hey, right there, that thing you're doing that you know and I know is wrong, it's time to give that up. And the Holy Spirit calls us of that to repent, not for shame. It's never for the sake of shame, but it's to give us more of the Spirit, to open up more room. Because sin will set in places where the Spirit wants to reside. So unrepentant sin. Number five, we have a low stamina for disappointment. We pray for healing once, twice, and then when it doesn't come, we say, well... God must have said no. Let's move on to the next thing and get disappointed down here. We just, we don't want to embrace this thing. When the reality of the Spirit is that we have to take risks. We have to pray prayers. We have to seek God and say, God, we need you. We are desperate. It's not until we're driving the stick shift, getting honked at, that we're like, okay, now I'm learning what this means. So we have to put it into practice, and that might mean we get disappointed. The church, early church, was not 100% of their prayers being answered. Did they stop praying then? No. Number six, we have a self-centered focus. 
that when we want to see the Spirit, we want to see it for our own purposes and our own ways, that we would build up our own selves. And yet if you go read the book of Acts, the, the filling of the Spirit is always coupled with the love for each other. Sacrificial love for each other, filling of the Holy Spirit. Sacrificial love for each other, filling of the Holy Spirit. It's never about me getting what I want. It's never about me gaining more status. It's never about me gaining more fame. It is always about my love sacrificially displayed for others. When we fail to love one another, we will not see the Spirit fill this place. Number seven, we have comfortable apathy. I'll just give you a quote from A.W. Uh, a. Tozer. Satan has opposed the doctrine of the spirit-filled life about as bitterly as any other doctrine there is. Satan has confused it, opposed it, surrounded it with false notions and fears. He's blocked out every effort of the church of Christ to receive from the Father her divine and blood-bought gift. If this isn't already becoming apparent to you, the church has tragically neglected this great liberating truth. There is now for the child of God a full, wonderful, and completely satisfying anointing with the Holy Spirit. We're just too comfortable living in apathy. Number eight is just dysfunctional love. Then Jesus comes in and he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. We follow that as this army ruler over us that's saying, you better follow it or you're never going to get my love. When Jesus, we, we know that's not how love works. Love does not coerce. Love is a mutual trust that Jesus is saying, if you'll trust me and live the way I've told you, this is what will happen. Over the next few weeks, we're going to dive into this a little bit more. Next week, we're going to talk about how Jesus perceives the Spirit, and then we're going to go through the book of Acts and just hit some key stories. But I need to set this tone for you today just to remind you. The Spirit of God is not some weird thing that we have to formulate to find an answer to. He is real and biblical and true. And he wants to fill this church and fill us. The only way that happens is by faithful response to the gospel and full surrender of our own life. The question is, are we filled? And if the answer is no, what needs to happen? Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness and grace. God, I pray that you would just fill us, fill this place with your Holy Spirit. And God, whatever that looks like, would you open our minds to see it and know it? And God, if someone in here is just wondering what that would be, God, Give them the strength to want to approach you and know you with it. God, help us to be a church that embraces you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.